and welcome to BachCast, episode 54. You've been hearing in this opening a piece not by Bach, but by a contemporary, uh, a famous violinist um, named Pysendel, who made his career in the Dresden Court Orchestra. And this is one of his compositions, we believe. This is a solo sonata for violin. And the the third movement of this piece, which is performed here by Johannes Promsholer, uh, is a jig and then a variation. And now that you've heard sort of the introduction and what that sounded like, the flavor of it, I'm going to play for you the variation on this jig from this sonata in A minor. you hear? Um, the idea that I wanted to uh, bring to your attention was that uh, in Baroque music, it is not uncommon for us to hear themes and variations. And there are not too many examples we think of. I think of maybe later composers who write themes and variations. But of course, one of the most famous by Bach himself is the Goldberg Variations. And he takes that opening aria, uh, the bass line of which sort of is the game plan for a set of 30 variations um, before he caps it in with another aria. So this is different. This is violin music. This is a dance. And the idea here is taken from uh, what we might consider less high art music. Um, divisions were... Uh, dance pieces that you would perform and improvise upon. And when you look at fiddling music or fiddler music uh, throughout uh, musical history, that's sort of the the, dan- the the gist of that kind of music is we get a, we get a song, we get a, a tune that we can recognize, and then we make variations on it. The reason I pull out this Pisendel is because I can't ignore the fact that um, we have examples around the time of Bach of solo violin music, and they are written in such a way uh, to draw parallels to the six uh, pieces that we have by Bach of solo violin music, the three sonatas and the three partitas for solo violin. Now, we have listened to uh, uh, some of these already in the Bach cast, and today's focus is on 1002, BWV 1002, which is the first partita. This piece, um, it's, it's a big one in terms of the musical material. 
But the, the game plan for Bach in this one is to present dance movements. And then what he does is in a, a very French style, using the word double or double, uh, he is providing sort of variations on what we just heard. And so Bach gives us a dance and then a variation on that dance. And typically what we're hearing is sort of a, a, a quickening of the pace. So it's not always that the tempo is changing, but they're, uh, he's doubling the note values in, in many cases. And so it's sort of more notes, an elaboration, if you will. Which is interesting because what Bach is doing is not giving us the sort of uh, the street musician version of this, which would have been to put variations on the spot or to work them out and sort of and you know have some have some licks, if you will, ready to go. But these are fully written out. These are far more cerebral, if you will, um, elaborations on on the themes. So what I'd like to do to start, I'm, I'm going to choose one performer here and just give you a survey of the entire partita. I'm going to give you the beginning uh, of each of the movements. Uh, so what you're going to hear is a dance and then the double of that dance. Thank you. 
Thinking about, we have, by the way, the, the dances. Uh, we start with uh, an allemande, we go to a courant, we go to a sarabande, and then we go to a bourree. So, four dances, four sort of elaborations on those dances, which Bach is calling doubles. We'll see the word double, we'll see that in, for instance, French harpsichord music. Um, and so, you know, Bach is always sort of borrowing from these nationalistic uh, uh, styles, right? Uh, when he when he writes out the title of of the Brandenburg Concertos, he he writes it in uh, maligned French uh, to give it sort of that international appeal, perhaps. And uh, whether or not you you trace these dances to Italy or to Spain or to France, uh, it's probably inconsequential to us as modern listeners but um, it's always interesting to see how uh, composers would would write it and what they were th you know conjecturize what were they thinking uh, when they gave us these titles for uh, when I hear these I keep thinking back to the Pysendel example and my guess is is that maybe Pysendel's example is after the box Sonata partitas uh, another composer worth comparing is uh, Westhoff. Uh, Westhoff is an earlier composer and wrote, um, he actually called them partitas for solo violin. Um, so when we have these other examples that are out there, it's it's just interesting to me because in the Pysendil example, just looking at that one jig and then the variations on the jig, uh, the variations seem to get more colorful. And what I mean by that is um, there's the introduction of notes that just chromatic elements that just makes it a little more colorful sounding and the addition of more notes in there. Uh, we hear in these examples, and by the way, these are performed um, by Gunnar Letzbohr um, on the Pan Classics label. He released a, a pair of albums, uh, the Sonatas by themselves, the Partitas by themselves, and they're unique recordings. At, at first, I may have said this in an earlier podcast, I wasn't a fan. I'm like, oh my gosh, the, the sound is so weird and different on these, these albums. And I kept going back. It's one of those things where, you, you know, you sort of bookmark it or you, in, in Amazon, you can, you know, put it on your wish list. I kept going back to it and there was something intriguing about the sound. And I finally pulled the trigger and purchased them. And, and since really kind of like them. Uh, the idea was to present box music in sort of a private uh, uh, private scene, if you will. What does this music sound like? What does it, what does it feel like? Not in the concert hall, not in this, uh, the idea being this artificial uh, space, but uh, if, if we're looking at this music as very personal music, if it's um, a much we might make the comparison to Bieber's mystery sonatas, right? These are prayers written for the violin, one could say. Uh, what was this like in the Bach household if we were to hear it? Or as the legend goes, Bach composing some of these pieces in a jail cell. Um, 
they have a different sound. They have a different sound world to them. And so Let's War wanted to explore that. He's playing a, on a Baroque uh, historical instrument. He's playing with the microphone really close to the instrument in sort of a practice room type setting. And so it gives you a very intimate, uh, detailed uh, opportunity to hear these pieces in a way that, you know, the concert hall sort of smears and blends it all together. And I'm not here to say that this is superior or inferior. I'm just saying it's different. And I'm glad that somebody had the uh, wherewithal and the, the creativity to say, hey, let's let's look at this music in this light. Uh, as any violinist who practices these pieces would know, this is not a totally new uh, sound world to them because typically a practice room is a very dry uh, acoustic and you can hear all of your, your warts as you play. And so for someone to uh, expose themselves that way as a performer, I think, took some took some guts and I uh, I applaud the effort and I wanted you to be able to hear what that sounded like uh, we're not going to go back to that recording but I wanted to have you be able to hear number one the interpretive uh, point of view of one performer across the entire partita but second of all uh, be able to hear that maybe in a different context if you're not familiar already familiar with that recording so uh, let's get back into the, the piece itself. Um, the entrances of the different dances, uh, to me, uh, are striking bef- because they, they have a similarity to them. And we would expect that similarity to take place because of um, the dance and its double, its pair. But there's also uh, some similarity in the way that uh, they all sort of start. Bach is not playing around here with changing the the mode or sort of stuck in the same key and is using that uh, to really highlight um, the flavor of these dances. And that is one of the things that I think uh, becomes a challenge for the performer. So the regular dances uh, have some some character to them. Uh, An allemande, a bourree, the Sarabond, we have strong and weak beats, we have sort of the meter, and of course you're trying to remember, oh, this started as something somebody's going to dance to and had uh, a choreography to go with it. When we get to the doubles, it's it's we're sort of in uh, no man's land. Some performers really want us to sort of still feel the beat and the pulse that belongs to the dance, and others it doesn't seem to be as much as a priority. And so I'd like to to have you now listen to uh, a couple comparisons with the Alamans. So this is the Alamand and the Alamand double. So when we hear these different examples, first I want you to pay attention to how they begin similarly. Uh, it's just as what Bach did. And then we're also going to secondarily listen to the stylistic differences between the approaches in the first set of dances.
So it's an interesting comparison. First is Victoria Malova on Modern Violin. This is her uh, sort of first Bach release on the Phillips label. And then we get Rachel Podger on a Baroque historical violin, um, recorded probably at least maybe 20 years apart, um, if not maybe 15, 20. I don't have the exact dates right in front of me, but uh, there's some distance between the recordings. But beyond the sort of modern take versus Baroque take, uh, to me the, the interesting stuff is, is, the, is the tempos, which are not terribly different. Malova sort of starts a little, maybe a little faster, a little, little stronger pulse. And then almost towards the end of that clip there, seems to relax it just a little bit. And then with Podger, there's almost more of a sense of the pulse, but it, and it works, I think, despite it being slightly slower. She's taking a little more time with it. Uh, she's putting less space between the notes. And they're definitely a different style. Um... But I sort of wanted you to, yes, appreciate the differences. Uh, both are, I think, viable performances. But um, that, pul that pulse is kind of important. Now let's see what they do in the, the doubles, where we will tend to lose a little bit of the pulse, I think, because Bach is just giving us a lot of notes. So for me here, Rachel Podger is doing something that uh, Malova is not doing maybe as successfully. And that's giving a shape to the line. In both cases, we sort of get just this meandering uh, set of notes. And the only place we sort of get a, mm, a little kick is where we get these, these sort of angular jumps. And both musicians emphasize those. Um, but there's something about... Uh, the shape of the line. And what I mean by that is it's a dynamic thing. Think of an arc. It's sort of the, it's what we naturally want to feel of the beginning and the ending of a phrase. It's like taking a breath. 
And for me, it's a little more obvious in the Podger uh, clip that there is a, there's a shape to the phrase. And I think that helps here. Um, the angle, the little, the little space that we get from both performers in those jumps helps a little bit with the pulse, uh, using the memory uh, of our mind to sort of remember what the original sounded like helps sort of maybe align the two. But for me, the, the real art here is being able to give a shape to the line. And comparing these two clips, my preference is going to go to the Podger just because I think she gives a little more shape to the line. Now the next dance is the courant. And a courant or corrente in, in Italian is, is typically a faster dance. And I don't say typically, it is a faster dance. And this is sort of viewed as the very virtuosic pair. We get this fast dance and then Bach puts it in turbo mode for the double. And so now we're going to listen to two different performances than the ones we've heard before. And we're not going to go back to Gunnar Letzbor. And I want you to compare the interpretive, um, uh, the interpretive artistry on display here. So of any of the pieces by Bach for solo violin, I always think of this one. Uh, of course, we can think of the Chaconne um, from the second partita, but the other one I think about is the uh, the opening to the third partita, E major. Those are typically like, you know, the show pieces. And so this uh, Courant and its double really are uh, sort of the you know, the high point, I think, of, of this piece as a whole, the set, the suite. So of course these these Baroque dances are binary pieces, and so I, I kind of played the first statement uh, in the in the binary pair there, uh, and then you you heard them starting with the repeat. Interesting to me, and I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not, just it's just interesting that we hear a lot more um, ornamentation and uh, maybe improv improvisation on repeats in these dances in keyboard music, but in the violin music, 
um, it's it's less of an occurrence uh, on these repeats. Anyhow, the, the first performance we heard was um, special to me because it was my first album of Bach's Sonatas and Partitas. It's on the EMI label uh, by a very famous American violinist, uh, Itzhak Perlman. And we heard, uh, you know, very uh, big acoustic, right? It, it, was, it was performed in a space with a lot of reverb, so it's, it's a great contrast to what we heard earlier in this podcast, the, the one by Gunnar Letzbor in, a, in sort of a practice room aesthetic. Um, Perlman is uh, emphasizing strong beats. He's emphasizing some of the leaps and jumps. We hear the double stop come in. It, get, it gets a little bit of a bite. and But that, that shading he gives to notes is subtle. In the second performance, we have a performer who is playing the notes much shorter, not in such a legato style, uh, and is really uh, taking to heart um, the the shading of notes. And to me, it's 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 like a lot of extra care went into uh, the shaping of that. And it goes back to what I was talking about in the earlier example of Rachel Podger giving sort of a a shape and a feel to a phrase. In this case, we're giving that shape and feel sort of on the micro level, note by note. And I think both performances are good. In this case, I kind of prefer the second one, which is Gideon Kramer. Uh, he's recorded the Sonata Partitas twice. This is his second recording, uh, at least if I'm keeping track. The most recent one, we'll say that. That would be more act, probably more correct. Uh, Gideon Kramer... Uh, this was released on the ECM New Series label uh, several years back, 2005. So it's got a little bit of age on it, but um, I still tend to think of it as, as one of the more recent recordings I, I've gotten. I typically don't buy these pieces on modern violin, but Kramer here is performing on modern violin. And it's a, it's a nice, I think, contrast to um, maybe the more classical recording, which I believe was made in the late 80s by... It's Ock Perlman. Now let's listen to the exciting stuff, the double. <laughs> Thank you. 
So to me, the, the Kramer feels slightly more relaxed, but it seems a little more labored. Um, we, the recording quality is a lot different, right? With, with the Kramer, we're a little closer. It's a little drier acoustic. Um, to me, the, the Perlman is, is sort of like elegance. It's, you see, you can visualize those big phrase arcs. And Bach sort of does this automatically in the music, right? The, the phrase is sort of... They're kind of like waves coming at you. And so it's those highs and lows that sort of anchor uh, the phrase lengths. And we can sort of breathe along with that. Kramer is doing something that, that Perlman's not, and that he's trying to emphasize some groupings of notes that fall outside of those big waves. And in, you could say, for instance, that he's trying to do both at once, and it, it gets a little uh, convoluted, I think. And that's not a bad thing. It's, it's because if you're familiar with this piece, you can sort of still feel the big waves. But uh, what's interesting, I think, about his approach is that he's he's taking the way that Bach has grouped these together uh, on the page. And anybody who performs the Sonatas and Partitas uh, or any of Bach's music, right, if, if you're reading it in a modern score that's, you know, like Edition Peters or something like that where somebody has edited it, uh, where somebody who's a violinist, let's say, has gone in and put markings in there that didn't exist in the original score... You, those can be helpful. Those can give you some really strong interpretive cues on how to play the music. But when we go back, because we have this music, uh, and I can't remember if it's in the hand of Bach or his wife, Anna Magdalena. Um, I can't remember. But we do have the original notes on, on, on paper. We have a facsimile of that. And when you look at the way it's written, Bach, you know, it wasn't in Bach's blood or is or the the uh, practice of the time to use a lot of slur marks and a lot of phrasing marks and a lot of articulation marks. And so when they're there, it's kind of interesting because it's like, well, I, I better really do this. But what Bach did, if you look at his calligraphy of the way he wrote music, he he sort of, you know, he didn't draw his his. 16th note bars really straight they sort of curve and it's it's kind of cool because it, as you look at the music as it's being performed or you're performing it yourself and you sort of follow the shape it's almost like Bach is giving us some context there of phrasing uh, in the shape of the way he's he's grouped the notes together and I think that's what uh, Kramer is trying to exploit here so uh, I like both performances don't get me wrong I think if I were to attach singular uh, words to them. Uh, elegant uh, is what I would put on the Perlman and um, detailed is what I would put on the Kramer. You may, you may have your own reaction to those, but I wanted to compare for you two sort of modern violinists uh, in, in the sense of not everybody's modern who's alive and playing, but sort of that um, more of the romantic uh, tradition uh, you know these these guys when they went to school they're they're working on the body of major violin repertoire that uh, you know, starts around Bach but then you know goes through into the 20th century and so they're playing a much wider gamut of music the 
their sort of the pedigree of what they've studied and how they've studied and the the lineage of folks who have not only taught them but then taught the people that taught them there is lineage of you can go back many years to many famous violinists um, there is a tradition in violin playing and I, I think in some ways that these performers sort of uh, exemplify that Kramer on the other hand he has two recordings so he wanted to do this again and I see him in this one being a little more detail oriented maybe taking some cues from the historically informed or historically uh, the performance movement that we typically hear Baroque instruments and I hear a little bit of that in his, his performance as well there are other examples in in the Kramer recording, which I, I really liked his recording as, as overall. When I reviewed it a number of years ago, I, I had very high praise for it. Uh, but there are some examples where he's he's very much against the Baroque mold, and he is uh, really almost uh, takes it out on his violin. There's some really aggressive playing, which I think, uh, as I've said many times, I think Bach can take uh, extremes of... Um, you know, temperament in in performance. He can be pushed hard. He can be pushed fast with tempo. He can be slowed down. He can be rearranged. That's one of the things that's really neat about Bach and what gives us the range of of, of interpretations that we've been hearing. So the next two uh, comparisons uh, will be with the Sarabande and the double of the Sarabande. Sarabande um, is a dance that Bach uses a lot. And it's a slower dance, and it has a strong second beat. And let's hear how uh, our mystery pair will uh, take on these two. You might think I was a little unfair, but I gave you uh, two examples that have some similarity, right? Um, if you're really familiar with these, it, it, it almost sounds like our first performer was going a little bit out and had an improv, improvisatory flair. And then we get to the second one, and we kind of hear some of the same stuff going on, but 
um, there's a, a world of difference in the feel and the sort of emotional investment, I think, between these two performances, which is another way of saying, I think uh, Victoria Malova has gotten really good over time because the first recording you heard was her more modern reading on the Baroque violin, and the second was her original on the Phillips uh, album that we have already sampled from. Same performer, different instruments. Uh, I think the the sound quality, um, Phillips classically has sort of had sort of a, uh, that sort of was their signature sound. There's a little more warmer intensity into the first recording we heard on the Onyx label. And of course, it's a different instrument. It's, it's, a, um, uh, it's an instrument in Baroque proportions uh, with gut strings and the... Um, the first one is is on a more classically um, prepared violin, yet the interpretation has really come a long way. So I give her credit for evolving, for um, the phrasing that that we get in the first version of that. To me, gosh, it just draws you in the way she emphasizes some of those, those beats, the way she's involving. Uh, the way she's employing a little bit of rubato. And the second recording was almost like you could hear the the metronome in the background somewhere. And the first one was much more organic feeling. So, um, again, you may differ, but I, I think the first one was, was really far more involving. So let's listen. In, in listening to the doubles, I'll give you the Baroque... Victoria Malova first, and then I'll give you another performer as far as a counterpoint. Interesting, huh? So there's, we don't get a huge difference in the sound of the violins, but we get a very different approach to the playing. The second uh, example comes from Isabel Faust. Um, she came on the scene on the Harmonia Mundi label with a, two different CD releases. They didn't come as a set. This was uh, came out in 2012, and... To me, she was a new performer. She sort of was a newcomer to, to my uh, sound world, to my collection. Um, and I wouldn't have bought it if I didn't like some of the, the previews I'd listened to before um, handing over my money. But um, this one's interesting because uh, 
Uh, the Malova to me is engaging, it's involving, it's pulling you in. It's uh, she's all about the freight, you know, shaping the phrases. Uh, she's including some ornaments, even. Um, I really can't say enough about how much I like the Malova. And then you get this version, which is much more subdued, right? This is this is somebody who is taking the special care to be very quiet about it, to be very careful. And the emphasis uh, on strong beats and the the uh, the phrasing is almost you know so it's very subtle. It's in the background. Um, at first, I'm like, ooh, it's faster, you know. It's like, ooh, squirrel. Uh, but I I really here in in this comparison prefer the Malova. Um, so to be fair to Miss Faust, I will include her as one of the uh, comparisons in the next, uh, the final, the Boré and the Boré double. So you can hear more of, of her recording. It's, it's one I don't think I've um, referenced, if memory serves correct, in, in my comparisons before. So we're going to hear now Isabel Faust uh, performing the Boré. that's some of the uh, most profound differences we've heard yet uh, between two performers. So Isabel Faust first starts out of the gate. She's strong. She's articulate. Um, she's, you know, technically uh, really strong. There's sh there's a shape to the to everything, and she's, I won't say a slave to the metronome, but she's, she's, she's not losing anything. Um, by going at the speed she chose. She's she's pushing it hard. The second performance is, wow, um, a little bit of a, a what I would call a thicker, richer sound to the tone of the instrument, where, again, a Baroque instrument here. This is Helene Schmidt, uh, a Baroque violinist that I've really come to enjoy hearing the stuff that she's put out. She not only performs well-known pieces like the Bach here, but she... she uh, sort of a Baroque violinist and a specialist, she's going after a lot of uh, maybe less known uh, composers out there, and I appreciate her doing that. I think she does it very well. The interpretation here is like night and day. Um, she is relishing in, in the music and the sound and uh, is not afraid to push and pull our sense of um, uh, tempo. I mean, wow. So overall, she takes a slower approach, but she's uh, 
you know, she's really taking those double stops uh, to heart. She's lingering around on them. She's giving a very uh, different sense of, of phrasing here than we got with the first. To me, they're both enjoyable. That's what's so lovely about Bach is that we can play with this like this. Uh, and I think it, it works in both ways. Now, you may feel differently. There, there's some that might look at that second performance and go, that is so weird, that's so different. Why, 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 why? Um, or you may say, gosh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I didn't, never heard it like that before. So knowing that the doubles tend to get a little faster, more notes, let's see how they, they take that on. Because for me, Faust has almost maybe set herself up for, uh, I wouldn't say disaster, but you know, she already picked a pretty good clip uh, for the first piece. Let's see what she does. Let's see what they both do when we look at Bach's variations on the bourrée. And to be fair to Bach, he doesn't write this in bourrée in the French term. We were kind of, I was kind of going there earlier. He calls it the tempo de bourrée. So he's sort of, if he's emphasizing some of the wrong notes, he's giving himself a little bit of an out here by saying, well, it's, it's the tempo, it's the flavor of a bourrée. Again, mixing up those nationalistic um, references. first time I heard this, I almost wondered if she was uh, joking a little bit. Um, my first reaction was like, well, that's like a practice tempo. Are we going to get a little faster? Uh, and then we hear it as, as repeat starts. Uh, we, it sort of kind of gels with us. And I, I think it's fine to forget, okay, this is supposed to be maybe uh, a, a beret is, is typically sort of a, a jaunty dance. It's got a little bit of a kick to it um and i really i'm really lost to like how to tap my foot to that whereas in the um the faust recording it was uh articulate it was it had the metric pulse it had um almost that minute attention to detail that we got with gideon gideon kramer however kramer almost at times was overly fussy or there were little blemishes to the way he um, was going after things and with Faust it's just it's almost like perfect and so my 
while I really liked the tempo de Borea uh, under Helene Schmidt for kind of slowing us down a little bit, kind of savoring um, the, the music at sort of the level that the violinist sees in terms of, again, looking at the score, how Bach is arranging the notes and giving us ideas about phrasing. Um, when it comes to the double, I have to give it back to Miss Faust because I think uh, she just does a, like a flawless job there um, at doing so many things right. The, the, the big phrases, the microphrasing, um, just, just the clean playing and, and Harmonia Mundi really did a good job at, at capturing her well, I think, in, in the acoustical space. It's, it's like an ideal. It's, it's not too wet. It's not like the, the uh, Itzhak Perlman that's just a little bit too much atmosphere. And it's, it's not down to that level of maybe we're in a, in a small room with Gunnar Letzbohr. Even to some extent, the, the Rachel Podger had a, a, a dry acoustic to it. To me, it's just a wonderful balance. And hats off to her and the recording team for producing, um, for producing that. So by the time we get to the end of the second partita, I hope that some of the melodies that Bach produced, some of the interesting rhythmic um, nuances that he gives has revealed to you the richness in this particular piece of music. Was Bach original, totally original in writing this? Uh, no, uh, there were other composers, although we don't have a huge number, but there were other composers around his time period that were exploring writing music like this for the solo violin. And the two examples I want you to remember are Westhoff and Peisendel. Um, to Bach, I think he is probably the better composer between those two gentlemen who were known principally as violinists. And of course, the, the, the crazy thing that I always go back to is despite the fact that we know in biographies that Bach was a violinist, he played the violin, and he's, uh, he's said by one of his sons to, be a, to have been a good player. Um, when we think of somebody like Peisendel, who's most famous, not for being a composer, but being for, for being a violinist, right? Vivaldi was sending this guy his toughest concertos over to Germany so he could perform them and wow audiences and wow the court. And we have Bach, who is this you know little church organist uh, composer, Kapellmeister, who produces this music. And yes, it's profound music, but it's profound music for a specific instrument. And so it's it's all the more interesting to us, I think, that Bach produced music of this quality, not necessarily being you know the violin superstar that we tend to think of with some of our other violin music from the period, the Vivaldi's, the Locatelli's, the Tartini's, um, that it was Bach who wrote this. Um, so it's just very interesting, I think, um, in context of... of the world in which we take this music. When we get to interpretations, I wanted to expose you in this particular podcast to a number of different interpretive styles. And in this case, while there are arrangements of this music for other instruments, I want you to hear it all in violin. I didn't stick to just the so-called Baroque violin, but I also mixed in some uh, what I would call uh, mainstream violinists, violinists from the Romantic school, perhaps. And to let you know that there's a lot of variation that we can get in these pieces. There's a lot of um, benefit to hearing the, the variation. 
because so many of them can be very satisfying to us. Whether it's the overall speed, whether it's the emphasis on strong and weak beats, whether it's on the emphasis of the phrasing at the big level, like the big breaths that we take, or on the micro level of maybe a pair of four or five notes together, there is a lot of interpretive freedom that our violinists, our performers that we are supporting through the purchase of music have when playing this music. And I want to expose you to a number of my favorites. Yeah, it's possible to have favorites among the favorites, and I wanted to point those out for you and why. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is about you and your listening experience, not about what I think. And if I expose you to some some new options out there, if I've wet your whistle, if you will, and you want to explore some of these recordings, go to our show notes. Uh, Bieberfan.org is our website. You can click over there when you get there to Bachcast, and I'll put, um, I'll write out where where these performances came from. If you want to check them out, please do so. And finally, thanks for listening.